This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. My name is Dakota Arsenault, and I am here coming to you with part two of my Intro to Film 101 series. Uh, so, like I said in the last episode, you know, I'm often asked for movie recommendations, uh, both from fellow movie buffs and people who want to expand their knowledge about cinema. Uh, I had a friend who had asked to uh, make a list of important films that should be watched in order to get a better understanding of cinema and history. Uh, and the list was really just sort of uh, a starting point that I decided to come up with instead of just listing the usual favorite films or best films of all time, that sort of thing. Uh, so I ended up you know, after my usual self, coming up with 25 films that I thought would be great as a good intro course to cinema. Um, a few uh, sort of reasons behind the list is it being 101, all the movies are going to be fairly easy to understand that you can sort of jump in uh, at any level of cinema knowledge and be able to get what's happening. You can point to one or two things that this movie really excels at. They're also all English language films, not because English language films are, are better or anything, but specifically because this guide is intended for native English speakers that might find subtitles daunting when they're trying to get more serious into film. The plan is to eventually make uh, a part two, which other than this is part two, but a film history 102 delving into more complex films, ones that are also uh, maybe different formats, whether they be documentaries or foreign language cinema, things like that. Uh, but that, that will come down the line depending on the response of this series. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to recap uh, part one, the episode that came out two weeks ago, there'll be a link in the show notes as well where you can go back and check, but I'll list off all the movies I talked about. All the movies are in chronological order, including this episode. Uh, so it all started with It Happened One Night, Casablanca, All About Eve, An American in Paris, On the Waterfront, The Rear Window, Twelve Angry Men, The Apartment, West Side Story, In the Heat of the Night, The Sting, Blazing Saddles, and the episode finished off with Jaws. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to start talking about the next round of films. So that way we can go all the way up to 25. Honey, I feel it This is a list of 25 films, and this is part two going from numbers 14 all through 25. Coming in at number 14 is Annie Hall from 1977, directed by Woody Allen. Um, why this film is important is, you know, comedies are often overlooked in cinema as far as, you know, the greatest movies ever made. And, uh, and sometimes it's a little hard to argue with them, especially with some of the state of comedy 
it could just be funny, but it doesn't really have much else going for it. I think what Annie Hall does is it keeps the funny, but it also has a great storyline behind it uh, that's really heartwarming, and then things get turn on its head a little bit and then things get sad and kind of despairing very quickly and then by the end of it when there's a bit of a resolution you you start to uh you, you change your opinion on how everything is going so woody allen regardless of you know what your thoughts on him are as a person this film uh is an excellent example of why he's so highly regarded it is definitely the best work that he's ever done you know he's made a movie a year for over 30 years now which in itself is just mind-boggling but this is the pinnacle of what he did two people that are both right and wrong for each other at the same time uh, always makes things complicated but it was never as entertaining as this there's some great flashback sequences uh to when uh woody allen's character alvy singer was a child um and how he grew up in his overactive imagination, how that carried on to him being an adult. And, and all of it really works lovely together. And there's some really interesting stuff that goes on throughout the whole thing. It's definitely sort of a pinnacle of what comedy should be and should be aspiring to be. It's, it's witty, it's serious, it makes you think, it plays with conventions, a whole bunch of other things. Number 15 is Amadeus from 1984, directed by Milos Forman. The IMDb plot description is the life, success, and troubles of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, as told by Antonio Salieri, the contemporary composer who is insanely jealous of Mozart's talent and claimed to have murdered him. Why is this movie so important? You know, opera has never looked so magical as it covers the highs and lows of the late 18th century music world. A wonderfully delightful performance from Tom Hulse as Amadeus and F. Murray Abraham is evil, magnetic, and riveting as his mentor and rival Antonio Salieri, as he struggles with his own failures and being in the presence of genius. Uh, Milos Froman, the director, seems constantly interested in mental health and how it impacts those around us. This is, this is a trend that followed through with his other movies, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as well. But really, you know, this movie... Is just shot so beautifully. There is some really stunning sequences, especially when uh, the operas are recreated. There's one where uh, Mozart is convinced to stage one of his operas in a less than prestigious theater. You know, most of his work had been commissioned by kings and royalty and things like that. Uh, but he is lured to make some money quickly by playing it in what essentially is uh, a discount opera house. And, you know, there's riffraff there and people yelling at the, the performers on stage and everyone's drunk and, you know, hooting and hollering. But the way they still stage the opera with this crowd going, it's just absolutely fantastic and a really interesting way of way it's done. And the music, of course, is stunning um, as, you know, someone as insanely talented as Mozart was. But the way that they convert that cinematically is really interesting to watch. Number 16 is Before Sunrise, which was directed by Richard Linklater, and it's from 1995. The IMDb plot description is, A young man and women meet on a train in Europe and wind up spending one evening together in Vienna. Unfortunately, both know that this will probably be their only night together. 
And why is this film so important? Is so rarely does a romantic film deliver straight romance with no BS. Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy are a revelation as they experience a first date, love at first sight, in the realities of, of life over the course of a single night in Europe. This film will give you butterflies in your stomach and make your heart beat fast as you get wrapped up in the story. And, you know, what's great about it is if you enjoy it, you'll be pleased to learn that there were two surprise sequels to this film that are just as much of a must-see, Before Sunset and Before Midnight. But really, I think one of the great things about this is the way convention is played. There's been other movies that take place in real time, and this one, Before Sunrise, less so compared to the sequels, um, but it really is one night. You get to see these people meet each other in the late afternoon. They end up deciding to spend some time together, and then things progressively get more intense as their very intimate connection grows, but they both know that it's only there for one night because they, they have to go. They're, they have train tickets, they have plane tickets, and things like that. Um, so when you know you can leave everything on the line, that's when the real raw emotions were able to come out. And, and both Hawk and Delpy give fantastic performances. And Linklater, too, uh, does a great job at making the film seem as natural as possible. At number 17, we have Fargo from 1996, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Plot description is Jerry Lundergaard's inept crime falls apart due to his and his henchmen's bungling and the persistent police work of the quite pregnant Marge Gunderson. Why is this movie important? The Coen brothers weave a tale of attempted murder, used car salesmen, funny looking guys, a briefcase full of money, and a very pregnant police chief in a way that only they can. This black comedy clips along at such a pace it's hard to remember what you've just experienced before. There really is. It's so difficult to kind of put a description on what the Cohen sensibilities are without just innately understanding it when you're seeing their work. Uh, it's funny, at times it's tragic, at times you're a little bit shocked to the senses of what you're seeing, um, whether it's some, some graphic violence uh, or some sexual content. The, the comedy most of the time comes from awkwardness, one person being a lot dumber than the other person, things like that. Uh, but it's all done with a dialogue that can only be called Cohen-esque. There's a reason why they have their own, basically, genre of uh, making a movie. Everything has a little bit of comedy, a lot of drama, and throw it together. You know, even their... I, I, I would definitely say this is probably considered one of their more dramatic films, uh, but it's still quite heavy on the comedy. You know, this is probably more balanced 50-50 than some of their other stuff, whether you have No Country for Old Men, which is almost completely drama with just bits of comedy, or uh, stuff like their, their comedies, more straight-up comedies, whether um, they've got a whole bunch of them. Um, it's almost too many to, to name Raising Arizona being you know, the first one that sort of pops into my mind. That's definitely a lot more comedy, but there's still drama involved. And number 18 is The Truman Show from 1998, directed by Peter Weir. The plot description is, an insurance salesman adjuster discovers his entire life is actually a television show. Why is it important? The rubber-faced Jim Carrey ventured into a dramatic role, and he couldn't have been more better suited for it. 
the film's foreshadowing of the reality TV craze, which would start in earnest a few, few years after its release and peak about a decade after, was way ahead of its time. But looking back, it's oddly prophetic, with a climax that still makes your heart race as you wonder how everything will turn out. Pay close attention to the background actors, quote-unquote, uh, to see just how layered this movie really is. You know, Carrie is definitely known for doing his comedic work, whether it's uh, on In Living Color and Dumb and Dumber, uh, you know, Ace Venture, all those different movies. He showed what a capable comedian he is. And while The Truman Show isn't a straight-up drama like he, he later did in things like The Number 23, which is more of a thriller... Um, there is definitely a lot of dramatic elements, especially in the second half of this film. Um, and he really does handle these parts really well, uh, in a surprising so, you know, the comedy gets turned on its head and it's made for despair and sadness and you, and you see the pain that's underneath that exterior. But this movie is, is great, not just for Carrie's performance, but just how much attention to detail that Peter Weir puts in. You know, right from the get-go, everything sort of has a bit of an uncanny valley look to it where you're like, that looks, that seems a little bit fake or not, not real. I don't know what to feel about it. But as the movie goes on and progresses and you start seeing these cracks and you get to see how much detail gets put in to make these cracks look like cracks is, is really fantastic. And, and everyone does a great job, you know, sort of playing their part. And the more times that you watch this film, the more you sort of see the behind the scenes aspect of creating the Truman Show that, that takes place in this movie. 19, we have The Talented Mr. Ripley uh, from 1999, directed by Anthony Minghella. Plot description is, in the late 1950s New York, Tom Ripley, a young underachiever, is sent to Italy to retrieve Dickie Greenleaf, a rich and spoiled millionaire playboy. But when the errand fails, Ripley takes extreme measures. Why is that important? There might not be a more quietly perfect movie than this one. It's part character drama, part mysterious thriller, and part horror with so many moving parts, it's a wonder that it doesn't fall flat on its face. Equally talented actors Gwyneth Paltrow, Jude Law, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Kate Blanchett join Matt Damon in perhaps his best ever performance. Anthony Minghella captures the darkest parts of our mind and can take us while photographing some of the world's most beautiful locales. This movie really is a treat to watch, especially uh, if you don't know anything about it going into obviously I'm spoiling it a little bit, but the lengths that Matt Damon goes to make himself his character look normal when under the surface there is nothing normal about him uh, it is really a fascinating thing to see because he really is uh, doing layer upon layer upon layer when when it all gets put together and he all and he definitely pulls it off throughout the whole film you've got this great mystery angle where to Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow's character he is Tom Ripley but to some of the other characters like Kate Blanchett, he, he is playing uh, Dickie Greenleaf because she's never met him, only knows him by name. And there's so many different moving parts in this. And it's just really fascinating to see how it all comes together. This movie is a little bit scary to watch at times. There's some really intense scenes later on. But, you know, there's some great moments of joy and jubilation from the, the jazz club scenes and the early yacht scenes. It is really a great movie to watch where it kind of has a little bit of everything. 
Number 20, we have Gosford Park from 2001, directed by Robert Altman. Plot description is, the lives of upstairs guests and downstairs servants at a party in 1932 in a country house in England as they investigate a murder involving one of them. Why is it important? With Downton Abbey and the upstairs-downstairs look into English aristocracy making a comeback, it wouldn't have been possible without Robert Altman's film a decade earlier. Utilizing his trademark overlapping dialogue, which forces the viewer to be selective about what storylines to follow, he crafted a taut drama with a wicked sense of humor. The giant cast, which are who's who of some of the greatest modern British actors ever assembled, all make their characters memorable in a way that is still stunning to see so many moving parts work as one. You've got some really great stuff going on here. Um, you know, it's... You get... The, the dynamics of the upstairs, downstairs, which, you know, as I, I said before, was uh, greatly expanded on in Downton Abbey. But this was really a relevation, relevation at the time, revelation at the time, um, gained to see what the workings were like, because most of the time films would only focus on one of them, not necessarily both at the same time. And it sort of plays like this interesting maze where you have two different movies occurring simultaneously. Um, and with the cast being uh, all British, with the exception of uh, a few notable uh, characters, mainly Ryan Philippe, um, it's great to see the differences in British accents, especially from the posh upper-crust ones with the more lower-working-class ones. Uh, Robert Altman made his name with movies like MASH and Nashville and The Player, and his trait has always been uh, overlapping dialogue. So you'll have a camera that starts panning across and all of a sudden you'll start hearing a conversation in the middle of it. You don't know where they got, how they got to that or where it's going to go because before you know it, the camera's moved on to the next group of actors. And so it's really interesting when you're trying to pay attention to certain things and you can't because the director's purposely forcing you to not have all the information, uh, which allows the viewer to be left in the dark for a lot of things which is in itself a bit of an exciting prospect where normally you know either the audience is smarter than the characters or the characters are smarter than the audience in this case neither the characters nor the audience are always on the same page number 21 we have the royal tenenbaums from 2001 directed by wes anderson the IMDb plot description is, The eccentric members of a dysfunctional family reluctantly gather under the same roof for various reasons. There might not be a more distinct filmmaker working today than Wes Anderson. You know, if shown a single still of his work is instantly recognizable. It's got symmetrical framing, vibrant pastel colors, long dolly tracking shots, and of course, Bill Murray, who has appeared in every single film of Anderson's except for his debut, Bottle Rocket. His quirky comedy about family, loss, and betrayal still feels as fresh as it did in 2001, most likely due to the film that the film is stuck in the 60s. So this is a movie that's got a very big cast. You've got Gwyneth Paltrow again, and Ben Stiller, and Owen Wilson all playing brothers. Uh, sorry, Luke Wilson. Owen Wilson plays a friend of the family, and then Gene Hackman, and Angelica Houston, and Bill Murray, and on and on and on. Like, this movie is absolutely stacked with a great ensemble cast, 
And when you sort of the fear of when you have a, a drama like this where there's a bunch of moving storylines, you might get lost or some characters might not get their due. In this case, they always get their due with Wes Anderson and every story makes a lot of sense as we learn more about each one and the pain and the struggle that they go through. It informs the comedy that we were laughing at earlier in a very unique and interesting way. These are some really unique characters, ones that you will not likely have ever met in real life, but they still feel so real coming off the page because Wes Anderson is that talented of a director and a writer. At number two, 22, we have Lost in Translation, directed by Sofia Coppola from 2003. The IMDb plot description is, a faded movie star and neglected young woman form an unlikely bond after crossing paths in Tokyo. It's important because young love is a complicated thing, especially when you aren't sure if you're in forever love with someone. Sofia Coppola crafted a divine story about friendship and being a fish out of water in the furthest reaches of the earth, and how being so far away you can never really run away from your problems. Both Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray leave themselves bare for every emotional wound to be present and open for all to see. Bill Murray kind of got a career revitalization working with Wes Anderson, like I had just talked about him being in the Royal Tenenbaums, but it took until Lost in Translation for him to be really respected as the actor he is today, someone that can handle uh, serious dramatic work and, and the bleakest comedy while also being able to do very physical comedy that he is already known for, his sarcastic deadpan style. And Scarlett Johansson had kind of uh, had her stock rising and falling, appearing in some really great movies, appearing in some not-so-great movies. This also was the one that really cemented her as an actress that needed to be watching, one that is as respected as she is today. Both of them really do form an immense connection with each other, and it really is apparent that they had to have gotten along so well in order to make this movie work because without their connection it just would have completely fallen flat you have fun when they're having fun you feel sad when they're sad you're you feel like you're confiding in a friend when they're confiding in each other it really has it all and it's just so beautiful the way that Sofia Coppola sort of juxtaposes this idea of being so far away from home while still everything being really familiar when you boil things down to the natural human emotions. Number 23, we have The Departed from 2006, directed by Martin Scorsese. The IMDb plot description is, an undercover cop and a mole in the police attempt to identify each other while infiltrating an Irish gang in South Boston. Why it is important. Adapted from a Japanese trilogy, this film condenses the best parts of the plot into one explosive thriller. It's a cat and mouse game where both characters are simultaneously the cat and the mouse. Matt Damon is convincing as the suave up-and-coming police officer, and Leonardo DiCaprio is equally believable as the rough-and-tumble Boston gangster, lives neither of them actually lead. Jack Nicholson turns in an all-time great villain performance as so devious you can't wait to see what shocking things he will do next. This is another great ensemble movie, a bit of a trend where I really enjoy great ensemble movies. Uh, this has a very big cast, but the, the two main leads being DiCaprio and Damon uh, are absolutely terrific in this film, playing characters that you might not usually expect. You know, Matt Damon, for the most part, has been the good guy in, these, in, in, in his career. 
Um, and, and same as Leo, definitely has sort of has always been the good guy. And both of them get to experiment by being uh, a bit of the bad boy, albeit for very different reasons. Um, and both of them have great relationships with Jack Nicholson's character, who is this uh, Irish mob boss living in Boston. Uh, this movie is super tight-knit, the way every part of information just gets revealed to you slowly and slowly, like a tiny little breadcrumb trail, uh, is really great to see. And when the audience finally catches up and starts learning more than the characters on screen, that's when the tension really wraps up, because you know what the inevitable conclusion is going to be, and trying to see if it'll play out the way you imagine it is really interesting. This is a movie that isn't always for the faint of heart, um, but if you can make it past some of the violence, is really an excellent movie. You know, there's a reason why Scorsese finally was awarded his best director Oscar after being nominated so many times before. It might be, you know, maybe a second or third best movie, but it is definitely a worthy reason to finally be awarded uh, that Oscar. Coming in at number 24, we have The Social Network from 2010, directed by David Fincher. The IMDb plot description is, Harvard student Mark Zuckerberg creates the social networking site that would become known as Facebook, but is later sued by two brothers who claimed he stole their idea, and the co-founder who was later squeezed out in the business. Why it's important? Sure, it's a movie about Facebook, but it really isn't. This movie is much more interesting in covering the mind of a genius, the rise and fall of friendships, and the psyches of modern millennials. The rapid-fire dialogue breakup scene at the beginning of the film shows off Aaron Sorkin's blazing script, and the regatta race shows how well you can edit together boats and music to make a thrilling scene. Um, Jesse Eisenberg really turned in a great performance that made him the lead actor that he is today, uh, with some really great supporting ones. Rooney Mara as his ex-girlfriend, Army Hammer as the Winklevoss twins, uh, and Andrew Garfield as his uh, best friend turned former partner, and then of course Justin Timberlake that shows up about halfway through the movie and puts a real powerhouse performance in uh, as the creator of Napster that wants to be on the Facebook train. All of this, you know, works together really well where... Like I said, you know, Facebook isn't really the point of it. The point of it is about friendship uh, and, and what happens when people have ambitions and are greedy and don't know how to compromise or talk to each other. And it's so much more. Um, really, the, the stars of this is, is Fincher's directing, which for a movie so basic is really well done. There's some really great sequences where there's the regatta scene or uh, the coding uh, contest, um, or some of the other ones that, that go on. Like I, can, I can just go on and on talking about why Fincher is one of the best working directors today. Um, and there's also a fantastic score done by um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, uh, which is really great. Um, and then, of course, Aaron Sorkin's script. Aaron Sorkin is obviously known for being one of the best scriptwriters. He created The West Wing and a bunch of other great things, but this might be his best film script. And last but not least, we come to number 25, Moonlight from 2016, directed by Barry Jenkins. The plot description is The Chronicle of Childhood, Adolescence, 
the burgeoning adulthood of a young African-American gay man growing up in the rough neighborhood of Miami. It's important because the three separate sections tell the story of a young man struggling with his sexuality and identity in Miami, while backdrop of toxic masculinity and crack consume his life. The use of color and cinematography plays just as important of a role as the rest of the story does. Stunning performances are turned in by all three Chirones and Kevins, along with Naomi Harris as his mother and Mahershala Ali and Janelle Monet as his parental figures. This is really three short films in one, with not with the only characters that the only actors that repeat their their roles are Naomi Harris and Janelle Monet. Uh, the rest of them had different actors playing the roles and, and totally different people entering the lives of uh, of this boy. It really is stunning. Um, the whole movie you just feel for this young boy who got in a bad situation and just does everything to make it worse and worse for himself. Uh, he is lucky there's a few glimmer spots of hope, whether it's his friend Kevin or his uh, his parental figures that, that come in in the first story. And later on in the last sequence when he tries to get his life back on track, it really is a beautiful story and, and one that sort of uh, does a great job tackling the idea of what it's like to uh, not be comfortable in your own skin, especially in regards to your sexuality and the way uh, some men grow up in, in very toxic environments and that they're unable to show their emotions or uh, be true to themselves because that isn't seen, seen as manly enough. This movie is most well known for originally losing the Best Picture Oscar to La La Land before on stage. Uh, the correction was laid out that it is actually Moonlight was the real winner, so unfortunately it sort of has that always hanging over the top of it. But if that encouraged a few more people to check this movie out, one that was the, I believe, uh, the lowest grossing Best Picture film of all time, then that was a worthwhile endeavor. We take a short break, and when we come back, going to... Say last few notes. Say like you mean it, we can make it happen. Organize the tracks and try to fill what's lacking in you. Still ask me if I do. down and make you anxious putting all my thoughts inside a paper basket to pick so that was the 25 films that i think would make a great intro to film course for anyone that wants to become a cinephile uh which really is a label that anyone can can be if they want to be uh, i love cinema i love sharing cinema and, and i hope that I encouraged you to maybe check some out, whether it's some you've already seen and want to revisit or ones you have not seen or maybe never even heard of before, then that would be really great uh, to hear about that. If you go to liveandlimbo.com, there'll be the show notes where all of the movies will be listed along with a link to the last episode where you can check part one in case you missed it. Um... And it would mean a lot if you maybe get back and say, 
what movies you think would be instrumental to showing someone how to get into film or your thoughts on any of these ones that I selected, you can follow me on Twitter at DGAPA and you can follow the show at ContraZoomPod. Like I said, the show notes are going to be on liveandlimbo.com. Music from this episode is from Callahan. Uh, we did a premiere for his video, Milk and Honey, uh, a few weeks ago on Live in Limbo. But uh, make sure you check him out and buy his music from Bandcamp. And lastly, something new I'll be asking people to do is to rate and review ContraZoom on Podchaser. This is a site that aims to be the IMDb of podcasts, which I think is really exciting. And, and I'd love to be a part of that community. Uh, please rate five stars and if possible leave a short review to help grow the show. All you need is your Facebook account and you can log in right away. Uh, also, if you haven't, I'd love it if you can rate and review on iTunes. It's a great way to become more visible and to attract new listeners. I hope you enjoyed this series and I look forward to doing a intro to film 102 down the line. Thank you. Something I was sleeping on till 